0: All right, please remain standing for our gospel reading this morning, which comes from the gospel of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and we're going to dismiss our kids this morning to their breakout group. And if you would go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to this text Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be looking at it this morning, along with a few others. As I mentioned earlier, this is week 2 of Advent, and in week 2 of Advent, traditionally, we look at the person of John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, obviously the natural question is, what is it about John the Baptist that makes him a central figure of the Advent season. And the basic answer to that question is it's because John is a herald of the first Advent, the the first incarnation of Christ. John is the one who is, as Isaiah said, which we saw in our text, he is the one who's literally Proclaiming out in the wilderness. Um, This prophecy that Isaiah gave us is extremely literal. Like John is literally out in the wilderness crying out. He's in the desert, he's in the country. He is preparing people for what is to come with Christ, the first advent. And we look at him today because one of the things that we have to take away from the example of John is that we are the John the Baptist of today's world, as followers of Christ, as the church, we are the heralds of the gospel in our world today, that Christ has come and he will come again. You know, we don't know a great deal about John. Uh, Much like Jesus, the Bible gives us prophecy concerning his birth. Uh, We read this morning uh, from Luke's Gospel uh, sort of a prayer that, or a, a word of praise that John's father, Zechariah, proclaimed. Zechariah was a priest in the temple, and if you remember the story, he's visited by the angel Gabriel. He's told of what is going to happen, but he, he doesn't buy it. Even though there's an angel standing in front of him, he doesn't fully believe, and so he's rendered um, unable to speak for an extended period of time um, until eventually uh, he is able to speak again and John, his son, is born. So we know John the Baptist was born. We know he is somehow a relative of Jesus, even though that's not entirely clear, um, what kind of relative he is. Sometimes Mary is described as a cousin of Elizabeth, John's mother. Um, some translations simply render that word as relative. So are they first cousins? Are they, are they related in some other way? That's not entirely clear to us. Um, like Jesus, we know virtually nothing about his childhood, Or how he came to be the man that we meet in our text today? What drove John out into the wilderness? Why was he baptizing people? Uh, There are many questions that we have. Notice in today's text we get a sketch of his appearance. uh, Garment of camel's hair, leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but as a kid growing up in the church, whenever John's appearance was talked about, uh, I, I, like I felt like he was presented as, he's this weirdo, like he's this strange guy who's out there in the wilderness, he's dressed funny, he's eating funny food, he's eating bugs, and, and, and I felt like as a kid, that was just the way he was kind of presented to me. He's just this weird dude who's out in the wilderness. Um, But that's not entirely true. Like, and this is far removed from our culture and our experience, but the reality was that John was simply a desert dweller, right? Like he was wearing the clothing and he had the diet that would have been characteristic of anybody who was living sort of a nomadic existence out in the wilderness. So I don't think the intention here is necessarily to paint him as like a, a weird guy or a strange person, but maybe more to paint him as like an authentic person. Like as a a real person, or or maybe even as an ascetic person. Like as somebody who has um, completely uh, refrained from all material indulgences. Like he is somebody who is living, he's an original minimalist, right? He's living simply out in the wilderness. It's also possible that John was what was known as an Essene. Uh, The Essenes were a Jewish religious group at this time that were pretty large. They were probably third in size in relation to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who are mentioned in the text today. Um, but the Essenes lived an almost like monastic existence. They lived communally. Uh, it's believed many of them were celibates. Uh, they seemed to live ascetic, uh, ascetic existences, like I mentioned a minute ago. Um, but interestingly, they're not mentioned in the New Testament. We don't see them in the pages of Scripture. Instead, we learn about them from the first century Jewish historian Josephus who tells us about the Essenes, and in the late 1940s, a treasure trove of Essene documents were found that we know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they were curators of what we think of as the Old Testament. They were curators of the scriptures, and they held them in high esteem, and they went to great lengths to preserve them. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were a revelation for, and a revolution for um, biblical scholarship when they were discovered, because it really was this amazing um, just horde of uh, scripture that was found out in the desert. And it showed us that the, the word of God as we have it today, particularly in the Old Testament, has not changed from the time of the first century. And so it was incredibly encouraging to see that. So we don't know if John belonged to that group. That's speculative. Some scholars think that. But he certainly bore some of their characteristics. And at the very least, he wasn't just some weird guy out in the wilderness because there were lots of people who were living in this same kind of way at the time. Uh, so let's talk about his message. Uh, his message, as we see in today's text, was a message of repentance. And what he says is his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And we need to take note of the fact that his basic, his basic announcement was repent. This is in verse 1. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this was also Jesus' basic announcement message and was the basic message that Jesus sent out his disciples to proclaim later in the pages of the Gospels. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet repentance is not a word that we use a lot today in the church. I think it feels old-fashioned to us in some way. Um, I think there was maybe a time in American Christianity where it was a more frequently used term. In the church, in today's world, we tend to talk more about things like belief and faith, which I think have more uh, maybe positive connotations to us, rather than repentance, which may conjure up more of like a hellfire brimstone era. It may seem more negative to us, but we cannot avoid repentance if we're reading the scripture faithfully because this is at the core of the appeal that John the Baptist made to the world around him. It's at the core of the appeal that Jesus made to the world. It's at the core of the appeal that the apostles made to the world. From the very beginning of the New Testament, this is what followers of God have been calling people to. In in Mark's gospel in chapter 1, it says after John was arrested, because John is eventually arrested for what he's doing, it says after that happened, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, repent and believe in the good news. In Matthew 4, later from our text today, we get basically the same thing. From that time, it says, that time being the time that John was arrested, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. So in many ways, it's as if Jesus picked up John's message and and, and not only says repent and believe, but, but he says the time is fulfilled. Like I am here. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because I am here, because God incarnate is standing before you. It's not just Jesus, as we said. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches to the gathered crowd of thousands and he proclaims the gospel of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he says in Acts 2. Is Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is unavoidable. Like if we just start in Matthew and start reading, this is the message that we see people proclaiming over and over and over and over again. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, says the same thing. James, the brother of Jesus, says the same thing. On and on. This is a central concept of the New Testament. Repentance, in the way that John means it, in the way that Jesus means it, is mentioned nearly 60 times in the New Testament. So we have to ask, what did John mean? What did Jesus mean? When he called people to repent. Because I don't know that most of us fully understand this today. And it shows a bit of a modern disconnect and discomfort with talking about repentance. If you go back to Jesus in Mark's gospel, he yokes repentance with belief. Like these two things go together. Repentance is apparently essential. It's like an essential component to believing in the good news to believing in this gospel that they talk about. Um, I think Jesus presents this in a way that says you can't really have one without the other. If there isn't repentance, then is there really belief? Like, do you really believe this good news if it in no way leads to anything else? If it leads to no change for you in your life, no uh, reassessment of your priorities or your actions or your morals? the way in which you live, then, then is there actual belief there? Or if there isn't repentance and belief, is there really faith? And that's really an important question, and we see evidence often, especially in this part of the country, of what I would call belief without repentance. Like people who seemingly believe, who would say that they believe, but, but yet is there really transformation in their life? There are many people who claim to believe in Jesus, and I think they do to an extent. They believe in the historicity of Jesus. They believe, like, facts about Jesus, that he was a real person, that he was the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin, that he died and rose from the dead. And so if you were to ask them, do you believe in Jesus, they would say yes, because they agree with facts about Jesus. Or if you were to call them to believe in Jesus, they would say, no, I already do. But they believe in Jesus in the way that I believe in Alexander the Great or in George Washington. It's not a faith thing. Instead, I've accepted widely held historical facts to be true. But here's the deal. We are being called to respond to the claims of Christ, to the claims of John, with our lives. Not simply to believe facts about Jesus... Salvation is not based on you affirming a particular set of theological or doctrinal statements. It's not based on you being able to answer questions correctly about Jesus. Salvation is, at its core, about repentance. Throughout the New Testament, repentance isn't only tied to belief. It's also tied to forgiveness. Jesus told his disciples to proclaim Repentance, quote, repentance and forgiveness of sins, in Luke 24. To proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations. When the apostles preached in the book of Acts, they called people to repent of their sins in order to be forgiven. In Acts 2, again, Peter preaching at Pentecost. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 3, Peter, preaching again at Solomon's portico, says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So that's pretty clear. And that's the gospel. This good news, that because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God's uh, reign, the, the, the realm in which he rules completely and perfectly is coming near to us in the person of Christ in the incarnation of God, but it's also coming near to us in the forgiveness that is offered to us as a result of repentance and belief. This this experience of having my sins blotted out is good news. It's, It's good news that that would happen to me, that someone else would do that for me. But that word repentance may still be a little murky for us, so let's drill down on it a little bit more. I want to dispel, hopefully, some misconceptions about repentance First of all, repentance isn't only about sin. I think we we link those two things together. But repentance isn't only about sin. Jesus actually never says, repent of your sins. That's actually not a phrase you will find in the New Testament. He just says, repent, like full stop. John says, repent. Peter says, repent. Paul says, repent. So there's more to this than just behavior modification or becoming a more moral person. I love uh, this quote from Tim Keller. I've got this here up on the screen. Tim Keller says, everyone repents for their sins. Everybody in every religion, there is nothing unusual about that. Even irreligious people repent of their sins. They see they've done something wrong and they say, I'm sorry. Everybody repents. That's not what makes you a Christian. His basic point there is like, that's just part of being a normal person, right? Like if if you recognize you've done something wrong, you apologize for it, you seek to make amends for it, you may feel badly about it, you may try to repair the situation if you've done something wrong. What Keller's saying is that's not a uniquely Christian thing, that's just kind of a human thing. There's more to this quote, and I'll come back to it in just a moment. But I hope you get the point that he's saying that being a Christian isn't simply about saying, I recognize that I've done some things wrong, and I feel badly about that, and I'm going to try not to do those things anymore, Jesus. Just sinning less is not what repentance is all about. And just sinning less does not make you less guilty of sin. Which leads me to my second point, which is this, simply feeling sorrow or remorse for our sin is not the kind of repentance that John and Jesus were talking about. They're not talking about us feeling sorry for what we've done. And it's highly likely that you're sitting there going like, wait a second, I thought that's what repentance was. I thought it was about feeling remorse, this sort of internal shame or guilt feeling that I've experienced isn't it about recognizing what you've done and like feeling horrible and deciding to live differently as a result of all of that? Well, well not necessarily in the way that Jesus means it. Um, and if you'll allow me to get kind of nerdy for just a moment, um, there are two words in the New Testament, two Greek words that have been translated as repent or repentance. Uh, the first is the one that Jesus uses and that John uses, and it's the word metanoia. Metanoia. And, and the second one is, um, well, first let me talk about this one. Metanoia basically means something to the effect of uh, like a transformative change of heart um, or a profound transformation. Um, sometimes it will be described as changing your mind um, meaning that, I, hey, I, like I've I've been doing this, but now I'm going to do this. Sometimes we'll uh, describe it as turning, as if I've been on this road, and now I've like turned onto a completely different road. And so all of these analogies are, are getting at what metanoia is all about. It's like, I, I was here, but now I'm here. Like something significant has happened. There's been a transformation. There's been a change. There's been a turning. Something like that is going on, and it's profound. The, the second word is metamelami. Metamelamai, And this word is used to express painful sorrow or remorse. So maybe what we're most inclined to think of as repentance is something we also find in the New Testament, but it's just not what John and Jesus are talking about here. Uh, We find this word in Matthew 27, 3, uh, in describing how Judas felt after he betrayed Christ. Uh, In fact, the King James Bible says it this way, "...then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself." And brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I think the NIV actually gets at the heart of what this means, though. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Metamelamine. He feels guilty. He feels shame for what he's done. And notice that it says he realizes he's condemned. He realizes, like, oh no. This isn't good. And and so he takes action, I think, to try to maybe save himself, even. But it's not this, it's not profound transformation on the part of Judas. It's this. I feel guilty. I feel shame for what I've done. So this isn't describing someone who's had a transformative change of heart. This is clearly describing someone who felt sorry for what he had done. But, but that in and of itself isn't, as I said, the kind of repentance that Jesus and John are talking about. So the repentance that Jesus is calling us to isn't simply to feel remorse or regret for our sin, um, even though I pray that we do right? Even though I, I pray that we feel sick over our, our own sin. Like, but, but true repentance, true metanoia, like it can come from this. And I think this is often a component of it, but it's profound transformation that we're aiming at. Let me show you uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians 7 to give you an idea of how these two words are used. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and everywhere you see the word regret underlined, that's the word metamelami. But then when you see the word repentance in bold, that's metanoia. So so just let me read this to us and give us a sense of what we're talking about here. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I, I don't feel shame or guilt over it. Though I did regret it, For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into metanoia, into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So what he's saying is, is God used the way that you felt to move you towards this. He used this in your life, for godly grief produces a repentance, a metanoia that leads to salvation without shame, regret, guilt, right? This is huge. Now, now you could easily translate that as, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without repentance, right? Right? Which would be super confusing, but so so we have to make some some like judgment calls here in translating these things, but but hopefully you see what he's getting at here. That ultimately this transformation leads us to a place where guilt and shame will ultimately become a thing of the past, which again is incredible news, right? Verse eleven. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So something, something new is coming out of you. There's been a transformation, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. So we see fruit that has come from metanoia. You guys following me this morning? So this is key for us. Paul is saying, I'm overjoyed that you felt terrible for your sin. And that, and that that godly grief, that God used that, um, which is different, I think, from, in some ways, the grief that Judas felt, this godly sorrow has led you to repentance. The scripture also says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And and I don't think that necessarily means God just acting kindly to us. I think giving us a sense of grief or sorrow or shame over our sin is a form of God extending kindness to us in the same way that it says um, that he chastises those he loves, right? He wants to like refine us. He wants to like um, even bring hard seasons into our lives so as to grow us and mature us. And so this godly grief led the church in Corinth, Paul says, to repentance. So so metanoia, don't miss this, leads to salvation, Paul says. It leads to salvation. It leads to forgiveness through a transformative change of heart. So let's go back to our quote from Tim Keller. And I'll read the first part of this to you again, and then we'll look at the very end of it. Everybody repents for their sins. Everybody, in every religion, there's nothing unusual about that. Even irreligious people repent of their sins. They see they've done something wrong, and they say, I'm sorry. Everybody repents. That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you repent of your righteousness. Not just the things you've done wrong. Not just the things that you identify as big-ticket sins. What, What he's saying is, is when you repent of being your own savior, when you repent of thinking that you being a good person or a kind person or a loving person is going to do anything for you in the scheme of eternity, it's when you set yourself aside in humility, in much the way John the Baptist did, by the way, John was famous for saying that Jesus must increase and he must decrease, right? When we repent of our own ability to save ourselves and say only Christ, Only he is capable, only his body and his blood, only his righteousness. I have no righteousness of my own. I need righteousness to be given to me if I'm going to be made right before the Father. It is only when we step into that space that we truly experience, I think, profound transformation. When we let go of ourselves and our our own arrogance and thinking that maybe somehow I can be reconciled to the Father on my own. It's not simply about saying I'm sorry for the bad things I've done. Repentance is not about diminishing your negative traits so as to maximize your positive traits so that you might be saved. No, it's about recognizing that I have no hope outside of Christ. Nothing. And I have no hope not simply because I've done some bad things or some unloving things. I have no hope because I am not Christ. I am not him. I have no hope because I am not God, because I cannot save myself. So this is like a whole life transformation. Not just changing what you think about things, not just changing the beliefs you ascribe to, not just stopping sinful behavior, but being transformed, or as Jesus says, being born again. It's like you've left the old life and now we're on a, new, a whole new life. Whereas as Paul says, it's like taking off the old man and taking on the new man. Now here's what I want us to see in our final few minutes. Not only is this a teaching for us so that we would be reminded of the centrality of repentance, the centrality of transformation, like pursuing this in our lives, pursuing becoming more like Christ, pursuing God's spirit in that, not only is that a teaching for us, But this is also our message to the world as the church. Because this is central within the gospel itself. That we have no hope outside of Christ. That we can't save ourselves. That we can't be good enough. I can't be sorry enough for my sin. Just as Christ came preaching and John came preaching repentance, and Paul and Peter and James came preaching repentance, so you and I are sent as ambassadors of this kingdom, this inbreaking kingdom. We are sent as ambassadors of this kingdom into our world, into our workplaces, and our schools, as we talk about so often, to declare that the kingdom of heaven has come near in Christ. And everything that comes along with that message should draw us into repentance and belief. As I said earlier, we are the John the Baptists. We are the ones who have been commissioned by Christ and sent into our world. Not, not just clergy or professional Christians, but all who call in the name of the Lord. All who would say... I can't save myself and, and who have experienced profound transformation. And, and here's the thing. If you've experienced profound transformation, like it is incumbent on you, according to the New Testament, to live that profound transformation in front of others and to declare that profound transformation in front of others, not as a way of celebrating yourself because you haven't done anything, but so as to celebrate Jesus, so as to point to him, so as to declare his gospel. In the same way that John heralded the first advent of Christ, we as the church are sent to herald the second advent. We're sent to declare that he's coming again, and what you do in response to that reality is the same thing that one has always done. What you call people to is the same thing we've always been called to, which is to repent and believe. But sharing that message is hard work, and there's a lot that's outside our control in that, and it's kind of like farming, which is this metaphor that John uses here in our passage. John was winsome, and yet he's blunt in his teaching, and I mean that means he spoke truth, and, but yet he spoke it in a way that connected with people. It drew people in. And so notice that the last verse of our text today is just a big farming analogy, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. This is, this is like an analogy that may not connect with us, because I don't think any of us are wheat farmers, right? And yet this was an analogy that certainly would have connected with his hearers at the time. Um, The hard part of harvesting wheat is separating the good grain itself from the trash, what's called the chaff. So you have to do what's called thresh it. You have to beat it and knock it around in order to knock the grain off, but you also knock off all this trash and debris as well when you do that. And so after you've threshed it, you have to winnow it. And in those days, and to some extent in some parts of the world today as well, the way to winnow it is you you take all of this, both the wheat and the chaff, the good grain and the trash, and you just throw it up into the air. And the grain, the good grain's heavier than the trash, and so it falls back down to the ground. And if it's a windy day, the trash, the chaff will just blow away. In the wind. And, and so the winnowing fork was like this implement, this kind of Y-shaped implement, kind of like a rake where they'd pick up everything and just throw it up into the air. And this is how he describes what God is up to, that he's like sticking in his winnowing fork, and he's like picking up everything, and he's throwing it up into the air And we'll see what the good grain is, and we'll see what the chaff is. And this totally dovetails with Jesus' talk of his return, which we talked about last week, and this idea that he will separate, in his language, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. Everyone is being winnowed in some ways, I think, in seasons of success and abundance, We're being winnowed in seasons of failure and poverty. You're being winnowed, and then Christ will come. And he will bring both the good grain and the chaff before him, and he will separate them. And the difference between the good grain and the chaff is repentance and belief. When a transformative change of heart has led you to find your righteousness and hope in Christ, And not in yourself. And when he is the one whom your life is oriented around, it is as if the chaff becomes grain. That's really the metaphor. We're all chaff by nature. None of us are grain by nature. We all get thrown up into the air and just blow off into the wind. The transformation that Jesus brings through his body and blood is he turns us into good grain even though we're not, and even though we don't deserve it, and even though we've done nothing to transform ourselves, it is through His power and His grace and His mercy. It's through repentance. Let's thank Him for that this morning. Father, we give You praise for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the repentance that you've called us to, and we also recognize our complete inability to repent on our own. We recognize, Father, that repentance is something that you have to do within us. And I pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to you, to your kindness, to your grace, to your desire to transform us Would you illumine our hearts, Father? And may we be people who truly repent, not just of our sins, but who truly repent of our righteousness. Who recognize, as the Old Testament says, that any righteousness we have is just like a filthy rag. It's nothing compared to the true righteousness of Christ, the enduring, unchanging, unblemished righteousness of Christ. And so, Father, we confess our need of you today. We need not only your forgiveness, we need the transformation that only you can bring, Father. Have your way, Lord. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.